Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the, whole, in the same Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so we're back to the uh, sacrament section in the Catechism, uh, and uh, we've just wrapped up the section on baptism and communion, and uh, you'll remember that a sacrament uh, is, in the traditional language, uh, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Uh, that means that there are two parts, the outward and visible and the inward and spiritual, which, um, and I'll kind of go back to this constantly, um, really, it really do, you know, the sacraments point us to the, to the truth of the incarnate Jesus, actually, because you see in, in the incarnation both the invisible and the visible, right? And of course, you see the visible, but, but both um, co-inhere and, uh, and exist in one divine person in Christ. Um, and what this tells us, I mean, I think quite strongly, is Christians uh, are not at leave to become pure materialists. Uh, we're also not at leave to become pure spiritualists either. Um, we believe in both uh, body and spirit, um, uh, and and this this uh, this is also not to say that these two are far remote from each other, um, but are rather um, uh, uh, well, the whole universe is sacramental is the way to put it, um, and uh, and I think this has been something which has been almost wholly lost in the last uh, couple hundred years, um, mainly because uh, materialism has won the day in terms of our our. Uh, I hate to use the word uh, worldview, but I would actually use the word metaphysic instead. Uh, I think the, the reality of it is that most, most Christians um, are so thoroughly formed in the, in the metaphysic of materialism that we actually don't inhabit the sacramental world. Um, uh, to live in a, to even think about a world in which angels are swirling around us uh, or where invisible things are, are constantly behind the veil um, is a very medieval idea. Um, but it's also true that, that those kinds of ideas existed well before medievalism, even before Christianity, uh, that you live in this world of, of invisible and unseen things as much as the things that are visible. And um, so it, it's become quite the case that, uh, that uh, many Christians have, have been quite, um, how should I put it, nervous about uh, these sacramental ideas. And, um, and I don't think we need to be, primarily because of the Incarnation, right? Um, and furthermore, I don't think we need to be because uh, the, the, to enter the world of Holy Scripture is to enter a world full and shot through with all of these realities. Um, and so, uh, um, yes, I, I think, you know, suffice to say, you know, despite all the ink spilled on um, and, and money spent on informing people of a Christian worldview, um, it actually doesn't quite get there <laughs> because the Christian world, the Christian worldview is expressly sacramental. Um, things visible relating to things invisible. Um, the other way to put it as well, and I think Hans Borsman draws attention to this, is the understanding of participation. Um, the, I think even if you can win people over to the idea that, that uh, things are both visible and invisible, seen and unseen, it's still hard to get this idea across that uh, the things invisible participate in the things visible, or more appropriately, the things visible participate in things invisible. Um, and of course, this is really the ancient idea, isn't it? I mean, uh, and and I would say it's not only in Greek uh, Greek philosophy, but it's also in the Old Testament, right? I mean, think about it: the Ark of the Covenant. What does it do? 
What is it? Well, you might say, well, it's just a box. It's a gold-covered box. Big deal. No, it, it participates in God in some express way so that um, we believe that the presence of God is in the ark, actually. Um, uh, you, can, you can think about uh, uh, things like um, the Garden of Eden. What is it? Is it just, well, yeah, I mean, that's the, it's the idea. Is it, it, it participates in realities greater than, what, greater than simply a garden, doesn't it? It only create, participates in the reality of the temple, right, as a future reality. But even if we break the timeline down and kind of leave time for a little bit, which is always fun. I mean, um, yeah, I find it really funny because novelists are getting really good at this these days. Like, you know, just time just kind of breaking down in the middle of a novel, which is always exciting because you're thinking, when, what is going on here? This is crazy. Uh, but um, it allows us to see that uh, there are realities that are outside time. And, and so the garden is a great example of that. Does the garden participate in the temple? Yes, as a reality. But what, is it also, what, what does it really participate in? Like the, heaven rea- the heavenly realities of God. And therefore, the garden is a kind of microcosm. Right? The garden is a kind of microcosm of all creation, the whole cosmos. Um, in the same way, look at this, this church. How's it laid out? Have you never noticed this before? There, there are courts. <laughs> this is, we're kind of standing in the kind of um, court of the people or court of the, you know, you call it the court of the Gentiles or something like that, but it's not really. And then, and then you have this choir, right? And the choir of heavenly angels. And then beyond that, the sanctuary, right? So, so to... Uh, actually go into the sanctuary is to actually go into the direct presence of God. And that's this kind of idea that you, that you, uh, that you um, go by stages, right? So there's the church has, churches have been laid out for a long time as a microcosm, not just of heaven, but of creation. Um, so to enter into the church is to enter into this, um, this heavenly reality. Um, and it, today, if you go to an English parish church too, um, one of the things you do is you walk through the churchyard, and there's always a gate, or there's normally a gate called the Lich Gate before you go into the churchyard. And it's to remind you that you're entering into a holy space as soon as you go through that gate. You don't enter into a holy space when you go through the doors of the church. You enter into it when you go through the Lich Gate. Well, why? Because to go through the, the churchyard where the dead of the parish are buried is to walk through the communion of saints into the church um, and so you see this whole kind of idea of, of how that played out. And that's actually not, uh, um, that's actually a, a, a pre-medieval idea um, dating right back to the time of you know, Christians worshiping in catacombs and then building churches on top of their catacombs. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just an amazing kind of idea uh, that, that all of this is kind of layered, right? Um, and that's another way to put it is that, uh, that uh, creation is layered, right, one upon another. Um, and, and the invisible things are not uh, uncreated, uh, per se, uh, because there's only one created, one uncreated, right? <laughs> not three uncreated, as the Athanasian Creed puts it, but, but one uncreated who is God himself. Um, so all it is to say that, that there's quite a bit going on here, and, and, uh, and that is simply to say that, that, uh, that uh, to be a Christian, actually, I will just put this simply, to be a Christian is to be a sacramental person. Um, one who lives a life that is uh, simultaneously hidden with God, but also a life that is in the world. 
Um, and that, that means that, um, that, that we have to be attentive to both realities and both levels of reality. But it also means that, that God in his wisdom puts before us uh, signs of this. Um, and that's what the sacraments are um, explicitly. Okay, so now we're going to deal with the, with the latter five sacraments. Um, and the simple way to delineate, and we're on page 59 in the Catechism, the way to simply delineate between these two is, uh, is, is fairly straightforward. Um, Roman Catholicism had a, a, quite, a, quite a short little tradition prior to the Reformation of saying that there are seven sacraments. Um, and of course, that had been articulated really in the late medieval period. Uh, but it was also articulated by a rather auspicious Englishman by the name of Henry VIII, uh, <laughs> who, who wrote a defense of the seven sacraments against Luther. Because one of Luther's, one of Luther's, Luther's thoughts was, hey, you know, uh, marriage might be a sacrament, uh, the Eucharist is a sacrament, baptism is a sacrament, but nothing else could be. Um, and he, he kind of, he really particularly denigrates a confession of the sacraments. And Henry VIII responds in this, you know, well, in, a, in essentially like a position paper. <laughs> and for this, he's actually named by the Pope a defender of the faith, which is rather ironic. Um, but but this, is, this is to say that, uh, that um, what happens in the English Reformation is that there's a, there's a way to say, and this is what is really presented, is there are two sacraments as generally necessary for salvation that are ordained by Christ um, and generally necessary, ne generally necessary for salvation, which we've covered in the past, means explicitly that, right? Generally necessary for salvation. So can God do it another way? Sure. Uh, but, but not generally. <laughs> so there, there's that kind of uh, wording there. Um, the other part of that is to say that one of the pushbacks in the Reformation that's offered and is, good, is a good pushback is to say, well, hold up for just a second. The scripture doesn't say that, that making a confession, making a sacramental confession is necessary for salvation, does it? No. So how can we teach that? How can we hold that? And from about the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 on, there had been this um, position in the Western Church that every Christian must make their confession annually. And then to that, just prior to the Reformation, was this understanding, if you don't make your confession uh, and before you die and you have mortal sin on your soul, then you're going to go to hell. Um, and, uh, and Anglican uh, reformers did not want to say that either. So they simply said, hey, there are two sacraments that's generally necessary for salvation, meaning quite simply, generally. Uh, and that's actually a break with, with, uh, with Roman thought of the day as well, which is uh, something like this, that, um, and it all goes back to Augustine. You know, thanks be to God for Augustine. He's kind of blessing and the curse, right? Um, Augustine kind of says, hey, you know, uh, we're not so sure about unbaptized babies. Well, there's a historical reason why he says that. He says it to encourage people to have their babies baptized, right? Because he, as a child, was not baptized. And he looks back on that as like, I wish I was baptized as a baby, right? Um, and there's this really uh, big current of, of people saying, and this is the big pastoral problem, is, well, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I, I'll, just, I'll just convert on my deathbed and get baptized on my deathbed. And the response of the church is like, well, you know, why not get it done? And they say, well, because the fasting is hard. And they say, well, because the penance is hard. And I don't want to do that. So just baptize me when I'm about to die, and then I'll go straight to heaven, and won't, get, won't that be lovely? And, of course, the response of the fathers is, you better get it done, because, you know, your, your soul hangs in the balance, and, you know, you better have your children baptized, because, by the way, unbaptized babies go to hell, you know. And it's that kind of 
kind of thing going on, or at least limbo, or you know, this kind of idea of you know, neither heaven nor hell, but just sort of a lovely little place that's not really heaven. Um, okay, fine. But but what the what the reformers want to draw attention to is that God does whatever He wants, um, and God can. Um, and there's quite a bit of, of thought that says you know, but it, that um, part of the Reformation task is to is to pull away from these kinds of um, extra biblical traditions. Um, that's a big part of the Reformation, of course, is, is, as many of you are all too familiar. Um, okay, so that leads us to the five, okay, that we can say strongly are not generally necessary for salvation, but are still sacraments, and um, and I will say that strongly. Uh, 39 Articles, which are kind of a, a you know, statement of Anglican boundaries and comprehensiveness, if I can just put it that clearly and simply, um, state that these five are commonly called sacraments, um, which follow uh, not from the teaching of Christ, but from the corrupt following of the apostles, which I love that little phrase, which is which has been used to kind of denigrate these five. Well, they're not really sacraments, you know. Many, many Anglicans will be like, ah, they're not sacraments. Well, but hold up. The, the articles say they're called sacraments, commonly. And that's not a slight. That's actually to say, like, you know, they're commonly called that. Why? Well, because they're sacraments, right? I mean, it, it'd be utter foolishness to call something what they're not. Um, so it doesn't say that. But it does say the corrupt following of the apostles, which means that, I think this is really important, that the mode of administration of these sacraments has changed through the dec- through the centuries um, and, and is not always and in every place the same. Um, well, and we know that, right? I mean, the way that confession was practiced in the ancient church is not the same way that it's practiced today. Um, the way that anointing of the sick was practiced in the ancient church, indeed in scripture, not the way that it was practiced in the medieval period and not the way that it's practiced today. Um, there's just a lot of this kind of going forward, um, as well marriage of the sacrament, right? Does scripture say that the clergy of the church shall officiate at all marriages and all weddings? No, not at all. Um, so there's quite a bit of, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, the, the modes of administration vary at this point. Um, Whereas in the Eucharist, there's great continuity, actually. Um, and you can actually look at, at uh, first century writings like the Canon of Hippolytus, which basically lay out how the Eucharist is to be celebrated. And those, those elements remain uh, today. Um, I think it's fairly clear from Scripture, especially Matthew 28, that there is one way to administer baptism, right? That, the, that how the water gets used, right, or what, how much water or you know, all of that, um, is rather immaterial to it. I'll, I'll claim that. Uh, but, but, uh, the words have to be said in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so all of that is shared. Okay, we good so far? All right, so, so what I want to say as well is, you know, this means that one need not be confirmed to be saved. One need not be married to be saved. One need not be ordained to be saved, thanks be to God. Uh, one need not be, uh, be, uh, actually make a confession in order to be saved, and one need not be anointed with holy oil in order to be saved. And in fact, that idea persisted on for quite some time. That, uh, and, and even though not officially in the record of uh, Catholic doctrine, it was actually held by the faithful. There's this idea of like, well, if I don't receive the last rites, including communion, unction, uh, confession, all those three, then, then my soul is in peril. Um, and that's the very thing that the Reformation wants to push back on. Um, one of the great themes uh, in the Reformation, well, there are two that, that kind of come to mind. One is, is Thomas Cranmer, and I'm probably going, I'm going on because you all are nerds and you like this. Uh, <laughs> but Thomas Cranmer, you know, 
he was pressured uh, deeply by the trial court um, under Mary to essentially like reassert his kind of Catholic credentials, um, which he sort of waffled around about. Um, he did wind up making a confession because he said, well, of course I'll make a confession. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but he, years before that, when Henry VIII died, Henry begged him to give him the last rites. Begged Cranmer. And Cranmer refused. Cranmer took Henry's hand and basically said, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, so there's this, there's this like, I'm not going to do that for you because the thing that matters is what? As a, as a Reformed Christian, right? Faith. You must have faith in Jesus, right? Um, now, let me just say, out of the fires of English Reformation comes a far more moderated position later on under Elizabeth. And, and it's often the case that people who are like, okay, I'm just going to lay out the territory for you. You've got these, like, you know, Anglican types that are kind of like, um, well, they're anachronistic, right? They want to say, like, hey, like, let's just be reformed Anglicans and let's just be like Thomas Cranmer. Like, and do everything the way Cranmer wants to do it. It's like, well, but there was, there was so much that came after that and so much thought that came after that and so much, uh, I would say, thoughtfulness and comprehensiveness that came after that. So you have to be aware of that, right? That, that, uh, that I think what comes out of the Elizabethan settlement, which is what it's called, um, is a kind of, um, a kind of both and kind of, uh, thinking about this, right? So are sacraments important? Yes. Is faith in Jesus Christ important? Yes. What saves you? Baptism or your faith? Yes. Right? It's just like, the thing that I really want you to get about Anglicanism is Anglicanism does not deal in either ors, ever. Anglicanism is comprehensive, meaning this. Like, if you ever ask an Anglican, like, is the church visible or invisible? Let me say, it's both. Um, is, is the Eucharist uh, 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 a, a spiritual sign or a, or a, or a physical sign? Yes, both. Right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of looking at all those things from all those various angles, right? Um, and that's not contradictory because, you know, in fact, actually, this is the fun part: is in the incarnation, all these paradoxes kind of kind of work, don't they? <laughs> like, that's the reality of it: is that um, things that seem to be opposed are are actually not, and um, and that's okay. All right, so let's talk about confirmation for a moment. Question one thirty-seven: What is confirmation? Confirmation is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer for strengthening by the Holy Spirit, following a period of catechetical formation. In confirmation, I make a mature confession of faith, publicly renewing the vows and promises made at my baptism. Okay, so I'll give you some uh, some historical background, and then we'll jump into the definition. Um, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, namely right around Acts chapter 8, the reference is given there, um, there's a scene when uh, Peter and the other apostles are laying hands upon those who've been baptized, and they experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because of this laying on of hands. And it's actually such an amazing outpouring that a certain guy named Simon, a magician, <laughs> says, how much would that cost <laughs> like, <laughs> to be able to have that power? Um, and of course, you know, they, they curse him. And then he's forever thrown under the bus as the founder of, of simony, the great buying of church offices uh, or goods. And uh, so, you know, that, that's unfortunate. But, but it, it's, a good, you know, it's a good thing to be reminded of that, that this cannot be bought. 
Uh, it's clear that the apostles believe they have the authority, and it's clear they use it uh, to invoke the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit upon those who've been baptized. This carries on through the ancient church in the first three, four, uh, four or five centuries, um, because everyone being baptized is on the night of their baptism, uh, traditionally on the Easter vigil, um, is also anointed with oil from head to toe uh, in many cases. Um, and, and this is um, you know, often called chrismation or anointing, um, and, and it's done following the baptism. And the church fathers make, uh, ha- give catechetical lectures on this because uh, none, of the, none of those being baptized even knew kind of what baptism was really. It was just sort of like, well, you're going to be initiated in the life of the church, you know? And, and they knew something about, a little bit about baptism, but had no idea what was coming. Um, and, and they would be anointed. And then after that, the bishop would, uh, would explain what happened to you. Right? Um, these, this, this, in, in Greek, it's even better. So like uh, you read um, the Catechism of Lectures of Cyril of Jerusalem or some of the, the lectures of, of John Chrysostom on this. Uh, they speak of, you know, you were anointed with chrism, right? And, and they're making these fun little Greek word plays like chrism, charismata. Like, it's just kind of like they all go together, right? Because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are outpoured through this gift of oil. There's, it's a fun wordplay thing in Greek. It doesn't quite work in English, but there you have it. That's the idea. Um, well, what happens? Well, as, um, as, as uh, Christianity reigns supreme, uh, the, the number of adult baptisms drops. Uh, baptism becomes done in the parish church. Uh, most often, uh, it's done by a parish priest, uh, and the parish priest is authorized to baptize, but not confirmed. And uh, so when is confirmation done? Well, later, when the bishop visits, if that ever happens, right? So, so part of it is that uh, bishops uh, will go around and they will make their visitations and they will baptize and and, uh, and they will also confirm. Um, and this is, this is done today. So uh, this is how it works. The, the bishop shows up and uh, administers the sacrament of confirmation. Of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, they've allowed priests to administer confirmation, um, which, is, which is a bit of a sticky wicket for us Anglicans because we still insist that bishops must do it. Um, but what is it? It's often been said that confirmation is a, is a sacrament in search of a theology. Well, why? Because historically, it's very sticky. Uh, there are lots of weird things that happen to it. It, it sort of turns into a kind of uh, rite of passage, or what most some might call like a puberty rite, um, which which is unfortunate because it's not that. Um, and I remember as a kid, you know, it's like, well, you're 12 now. It's time to get confirmed when the bishop visits. I'm like, oh, really? That's fun. Like, <laughs> what is that all about? And he said, well, you're going to learn all about like. Blah, blah, blah. And it was the worst, right? It was the worst. It was the worst kind of like. Oh gosh, it was bad. It was just really bad. The instruction was bad. Like you know, all of it was bad. And um, and I shouldn't have been confirmed in those days. I'm glad I was, but but I shouldn't have been confirmed in those days because um, I I wasn't really like a believing Christian at that point. I was sort of like just along for the ride. And um, but but here at Christ Church, we we expect that those being confirmed will make these uh, adult commitments and and mature commitments. So let's read through it. Confirmation is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer for strengthening by the Holy Spirit following a period of catechetical formation. So I love that. uh, that When you get to write the catechism, you get to write it however you want, put it in front of the bishops, and sometimes they don't know better. So they say, following a period of catechetical formation, really? Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's how it's supposed to be done. 
Oh, okay. Um, but look, what are, what's the outward invisible sign? The bishop lays hands on the head, right? Um, he may or may not anoint with oil. Our bishop anoints with oil, but doesn't have to. Um, prays for the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. So this is important. Not praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit, because when does that absolutely happen? I say absolutely. Baptism. So this is a prayer for the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's following the period of catechetical formation. So it's, it's understood that one must know, at the very least, the Lord's Prayer and the King's Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and not only that, but be well instructed in all things that Christians believe. In confirmation, I make a, a mature confession of faith, publicly renewing the vows and promises made at my baptism. So the understanding here also is that for one baptized as a child, they're taking these baptismal promises and vows on themselves. Um, and they therefore become responsible for them at that point. Um, this is the reason that I, I hesitate to uh, confirm anyone who can't drive. Um, <laughs> or confirm anyone who, uh, who uh, can't get themselves to church. Right? Um, and, uh, or who I'm, who I'm not certain will be there, right, if, if left to their own devices. Um, it's also why I think the age needs to be pushed back considerably. Um, listen, I mean, I will tell you, I think adolescence is just a complete sham, and it's not real, and we need to be gone with it as soon as possible, because adolescence, it's, it's, it's a joke, right? We made it up in the early 20th century, um, and we need to unmake it up. Uh, but the reality of it is, that's how people think. And it means that we have this juvenile generation that, you know, if you know it, you're like, well, you're all responsible adults. And you sort of think, like, why won't my friends from high school grow up? Well, it's because they're caught in perpetual adolescence, right? And there's never this idea, well, now I have to be a grown-up. It's like, well, no, I don't, actually, because, you know, no, we, we praise eternal youth in our, in our world. And so um, part of the thing that I really hate about the way that confirmation has gone is it's sort of like ooing and aahing over youth that are sort of quote-unquote becoming adults. And it's like, no, not really. Like, they're, they're still pretty, you know, they're not really squared away. And, and I would rather take the time to make sure that that's happening and, and do confirmation then. Okay. But the public renewal of those vows made it, made it that. Um, you know, this has a really great benefit to it as well, which is that lest anyone say, you know, oh, you just baptize infants and then you just, you know, kind of figure they're all going to heaven when they die and, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. Like, we take confirmation and we take uh, catechesis of our children seriously. Um, we take it as a responsibility. But at the same time, you know, part of part of the thing any parent understands, you get this one for free, is, is that there's a relationship between freedom and responsibility, right? As freedom increases, so does responsibility. And the moment you wind up in this weird space where you try to limit your child's freedom and, and increase their responsibility, right? You're like, great. No, you have to do the dishes. And you have to do them at 6 o'clock, and you have to do them just like this. And you have to finish them by this time. Right? That's, that's not a good way to parent. Because then kids are like, well, screw you, I don't want to do it that way. But if you say to them, hey, listen, you can do the dishes anytime between 5.30 and 9 o'clock. Heck, you can even do them at 11 o'clock. But they better be done by you know, 8 o'clock in the morning. Or your sibling won't do them, you'll do them that day. Right? Does that make sense? So you can kind of add in all these things. And like, this is a really important thing because it gives them the freedom to be able to do it. And they also have the responsibility and those two things increase over time. Little babies, zero freedom, zero responsibility. Hopefully by the time they're like 18, 19, 20, they can be fully responsible, fully free. Right? 
And because you're all responsible adults, this is what your parents did for you, hopefully. Like they just said, hey, like this is how it's going to be. Um, and you're going to get all this freedom and you're also going to get this responsibility, but we're going to let it out slowly, right? Um, but this idea that this is the thing I want to really be highly critical of today. If you hear me be critical, like this is the thing I want you to be, want to be critical of. Like, okay, well, 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 baptism doesn't really do anything, but we darn well better administer it only to children who are reached this mis- mythical age of reason at like seven years old or eight years old or nine years old or whatever it is. Very strange. Like, listen, I mean, I got a 14 year old and she is she's less reasonable now than she was at 10, right? <laughs> that's 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 a myth, right? It's a total myth. Um, adolescence is a myth, right? The idea that uh, at eight or nine they sort of enter into this new phase is just like it's crazy, right? Um, what actually happens is freedom and responsibility increase over time. Um, and and the thing that that we need to just for that I think we just need to say is that um, well. The reason we baptize infants is that they have no freedom and they have no responsibility, right? They're going to be Christians. Right now. Now, later they'll have freedom and later they'll have responsibility over that. And later they might decide to walk away from it. That's their decision. Like, fully. Um, But you see where I'm going with this? Is like, this opportunity, when they have this opportunity to not be apostate and kind of own up to these, these promises and vows, great time to do it, right? During all this time. So, to say that to you. Alright. What grace does God give you in confirmation? In confirmation I am further empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit for daily growth in wisdom, courage, and humility before God in every aspect of my life and work. Um, so there's this language of empowering and gifting, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this empowering of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's very important uh, to talk about this uh, primarily because um, you know, one way to look at confirmation is as a kind of ordination rite. It has all the elements of an ordination. Think about it. Laying on of hands, kind of taking promises. Um, so all that's there, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, and what happens in the ordination, right? The gifts of the Holy Spirit are invoked upon the ordinance for, for the work of ministry, right? Well, the same thing happens in confirmation. Um, now, it's not considered uh, a kind of ordained ministry, but it is a kind of like, it is, a, it is a type of ordination. Um, and that means that uh, certain gifts will be poured out upon you. And by the way, I've known people through the years who, who were like, I don't know what happened in my confirmation, but I started to feel some juice in certain things. Like I was like juiced up for whatever it was that was needed in my life. Like, um, you know, I've, I've known people who are like, I got confirmed. And then all of a sudden, like, I got better at my job. <laughs> Like it was really weird, you know, and like I got better at my job and then I got promoted, right? Or, um, hey, like I was really struggling with my family life and a lot of healing was affected after that. Or I had a really terrible relationship with my mother or my father and that's changed. Um, maybe because mom and dad went away, maybe because uh, it got better. Um, or something like this. Hey, like I'd never been able to speak in public. And I got that, I got I got confirmed, and all of a sudden it's like I wanted to speak in public. Um, so there's these things that happen, and, and if, if you're preparing for confirmation, don't be surprised when that happens to you. That uh, that God just sort of says, like we're gonna we're gonna give you some gifts for ministry, right? These are really important things. Um, not only this, but for daily growth in wisdom, courage, and humility before God in every aspect of my life and work. And you know who doesn't need more wisdom? Who doesn't need more courage? 
Um, who doesn't need more humility? Um, these things all start to come and, and, and be increased in this sacrament. What is the work of all Christians? I love this. All Christians are to bear witness to Christ in their lives, to care for the poor, the strangers, widows, and orphans, and according to their gifts, to serve Christ in the world and in the church. I love this um, because there's this really false idea, and none of you hold this. I know that because we're at Christ Church, and that's just not tolerated. But this is the idea of like, well, you know, Father Lee, you're a minister, and I'm not. Like, you, <laughs> you, you're the one who does the ministry, and I just sort of pay for it. Or you're the one who does the ministry, and I just sort of watch. Like, no, uh, all Christians um, are to bear witness to Christ in their lives, to care for the poor, strangers, widows, and orphans. Like, that's just the reality of it. Um, no one gets exempt for this, <laughs> from this. It's everyone's responsibility, um, and and uh, to serve Christ is the prerogative and the, and the gift of every Christian, um, whether confirmed or not, I would say. But but it's it's interesting to note that in confirmation, it's precisely those gifts for ministry that are prayed for by the bishop. Um, so I want to encourage you in that regard. I think I think it's actually really kind of a tragedy in a lot of ways that um, that uh, we've had this sort of. Uh, uh, well, I think what happened in um, in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s, because of a vast increase um, across the board in terms of there's a great article by Yuval Levin about this. Um, there's a vast increase in institutional trust. Gallup has actually tracked this; like, went way up. Trust in the nation, trust in our churches, trust in all those kinds of things. It actually meant an increase in clericalism as well. There's this idea like I trust medicine, so therefore I trust doctors. Like I trust uh, I trust the president of the United States, so therefore I trust like that the war in Vietnam is probably a good thing. You know, I trust the president of the United States, so I'm I'm pretty sure that like even though I don't understand the mo- the moral questions sur- surrounding like nuclear war, like I'm pretty okay with it because like I trust that they know it better than I do, and they're gonna, they're going to do it and carry it out, right? So now we're in a stage of rebelling against that trust, right? Institutional loyalty is just shot, just shot completely. Like no one trusts them in the in the uh, in, in the government or in the church or in all those kinds of things, right? So what's the task? Well, the task is to um, is kind of do two things simultaneously. One is for the clergy to be more trustworthy, which would be you know awesome if that could be done. But it's also to uh, to correct the excesses of clericalism at the same time, because if clericalism is a problem, it's Anti-clericalism is also a problem, right? Where we kind of have this like, everybody just does what they want, and everybody just does what they think they should. Well, well, you know, that doesn't make for an ordered society. It also doesn't make for an ordered church, right? Uh, but we should say all the while that um, just as an ordered society is the responsibility of every citizen, it's also a special responsibility of certain people within the society. In the same way, we can say it about the church, just as the the health and welfare of the church and the witness. Uh, to Christ in the world and the mission of the church is the responsibility of every Christian. We can also say, well, it's the responsibility of certain others to do more than that or to lead in that. And I think that's only natural. Um, but it is important that we say, who's in ministry? Every Christian. We have to say this. It's really key. And, and confirmation actually shows us that. Okay. Ready to talk about ordination? Because this is where we're going to really... I'm using that as a segue and we've got about, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes to deal with it. So... Uh, let's make it. Let's make it fun. All right. Question 140. What is what is ordination? Ordination is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer, 
which confirms the gifts and callings of the candidates, consecrates them, and grants them authority to serve Christ and his church in the office to which they have been called. Okay, so the outward visible sign of ordination is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer, just as it is in confirmation, so you'll note that. Um, I would also add on to that, um, as a personal note, that I do believe that um, bishops, priests, and deacons are visible, walking, talking sacraments um, because they continually uh, display the grace of God, and thanks be to God for that, right? Because here's the deal, right? On a Sunday morning, when I celebrate the Eucharist, I really hope that you don't sit there and say, what horrible thing did Father Nelson say on his way out the door to his wife before coming to celebrate the Eucharist? Is this going to be the real deal there? I don't know. Maybe? China? Potentially? Possibly? No, you should say, it doesn't matter what he did. Like, now, of course, for his soul and for the sake of his holiness, like, we should care what he said to, you know, like, we should care about his holiness. And believe me, like, um, like, uh, I, I care, right, about my own holiness. Like, uh, but I'll also tell you that I'm a sinner. And I'm a sinner who celebrates the Eucharist. I'm a sinner who hears confessions. I'm a sinner who anoints the sick. And that's rough at times. Um, I think, you know, every, every Christian who wants to understand ordination should actually read Graham Greene's book, The Power and the Glory. You know what I'm talking about? The story of a whiskey priest who uh, has fathered a child, and he persists in running around Mexico, northern Mexico, being chased by the federales who are trying to kill him. And uh, it's a great book because, you know, he's a terrible alcoholic. He's always drunk, you know, and he's always, like, hearing confessions drunk and celebrating the Eucharist drunk. But here's the great thing. The great thing in the book is Graham Greene understands what a priest is. He can't walk away from it. No matter how terrible the sinner he is, no matter how terrible of a person he is, he can't walk away from it because all this stuff is still there and there's a kind of blackmail on his life. Like he has to do this because he's a priest. And at the end of the book, just to spoil it for you, um, he dies a martyr's death. And I think it, he's even drunk as he's being martyred. But what an image that is of the priesthood, isn't it? Like, what an image that is of ordination. I mean, you're not worthy of this. No one's worthy of this. Let's, let's put that out of our minds. Right? Now, does that mean that we should ordain, you know, alcoholics and sinners and the rest, like people who are, like, deep? In, no, not at all. There has to be a kind of um, discernment there. Um, but that's just to say that's where that is. Uh, and so I believe firmly that, um, that ordination does mean that those who are ordained are walking, talking sacraments. Why? Well, because they are very clearly out in the visible sign of grace. Um, because, you know, the reality is, I, I will disappoint you over and over and over again. Um, Father Matthew likes to share with me what, what um, one of his professors at Fuller says, which is that the struggle in pastoral ministry is to uh, uh, basically disappoint people at a rate they can tolerate. Um, and I think that's basically true, right? Um, it confirms the gifts and calling of a candidate, so this is important too, which is that ordination is, uh, is given to those who have um, shown that they have gifts for ministry. It's also shown, uh, given to those who have shown a calling to ministry, not just like their own sense of it, but the whole church uh, discerning this with them. Um, we're currently walking through ordination process with several uh, people in the parish, and and uh, they, they are uh, discerning this at several levels, right? So there's all of that going on um, at once. Consecrates them. Well, what does that mean? 
from Latinus to Monastery. It, 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 makes, it makes them holy. It sets them apart. Um, it doesn't mean that you know they're sort of like automatically holy and will never sin again. I wish. But what does it say? It's like they're set apart. Um, and grants them authority to serve Christ and his church in the office to which they have been called. Okay, so this is another part of it too, which is that there is both the indelible character of ordination, which means that um, that it just doesn't go away, right? Um, one of the things that I want to kind of emphasize to you is that in, in Anglicanism, and in fact throughout the Catholic tradition, um, if one is ordained, uh, that ordination does not need to be repeated. Um, so I'll tell you a great story. I have a good friend, Father John Munson, who's a priest in the diocese. And when I first met him, uh, it was at an olive, it was at a, a, a macaroni grill. And, <laughs> and my mentor, Father Crary, was like, hey, I want you to meet John Munson. Okay, and this is his wife, Lori. Like, oh, it's good. it's good to meet you, you know, and all this. And so they go to their table, and we sit down at ours, and, and, uh, and he says, you know, do you know who that is? I said, I don't. That's, that's John Munson. He's a priest. And he had been, he had been coming to our parish. Um, basically, long story short, he was ordained, uh, was a terrible alcoholic, um, had, I mean, reached rock bottom while he was a priest, and got into some recovery. Um, in the midst of recovery, lost his faith. Um, he fell in with some Christian motorcyclists. And this is no kidding. Christian motorcyclists. A motor, like Christian motorcycle gang, you know, with the leather and the crosses and all that stuff. And they basically, like, evangelized him. Again. And he got deep into Christian motorcycling. And then he was like, remembering all these things about who he was and what he'd been ordained for. And like he, he started coming back to the parish. And I went out to California, and when I came back on a like weekday, I was there, and there he was, wearing a clerical collar. And, and he's like, yeah, the bishop reinstated me. Like, that's awesome, right? Well, because um, you know, that was never lost, right? What, what, what had happened to him was not lost. He couldn't, this is the point, he couldn't run from it um, because it had been given at that level. Um, and and this is this goes straight back uh, to some of the controversies that that uh, surround Augustine. I mean, if you want to remember Augustine, there are two major controversies swirling around Augustine. One is the Trinitarian controversy, so he he's a strong proponent of the Trinity, and the other is this uh, conflict with the Donatists. And the Donatists are those who basically have held that one who was once apostate or who fell under persecution cannot be ordained. Um, consecrated the bishop, etc. And Augustine's pushback is is this that it's not the moral uprightness of the of the recipient of ordination that makes the ordination valid. It's actually the church doing what the church does that does this. Um, and uh, and um, he has this wonderful phrase in in Latin that that is his and it's others, but ex opere operato, which means essentially by the work work, not by the character of the, of the ordinance. So that's a really important thing. Um, I think for many people coming uh, from evangelical churches, there's this giant emphasis upon the pastor and the character of the pastor. Um, no, that's not unimportant. I want to say that really strongly. It's not unimportant. But I hope what you see at Christ Church is not the kind of idea that there should be a cult of personality headed by me. Um, but rather that a priest is a priest is a priest. Like, that's what I really want you to get. 
Um, and someday I will not be the priest of Christ, I won't be the rector of Christ Church, and, uh, and there will be a new priest in place, and hopefully life will carry on just as it has. Right? Because, because um, though it's important, it's not that important. And I want to make that clear. All right. Um, so there's both the indelible character, but there's also the office. And, um, and priests can be removed from office, um, but they're still priests. Um, it's kind of like how we continue to call uh, presidents presidents. Right? Now, are they in the office? Well, no. But they're still a president. Uh, it's, but it's, it's deeper than that. Um, in, in Lutheran churches, you have to maintain a call in a church in order to remain as, the, uh, as a pastor. If you lose a call, you're no longer a pastor. Uh, Presbyterian churches, you have to be like uh, elected an elder. Um, if you're not elected to an eldership in some church, whether teaching elder or... Um, or, uh, or uh, leading elder, whatever they call it, um, then then you're no longer an elder, right? And and so that's how it works. Um, but but in the, in the Catholic tradition, um, this this martyr ordination is indelible, um, and uh, and therefore continues on, even though the office may change. That's important. Okay, ready? What grace does God give in ordination? In ordination, God conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work of the order being conferred. So. In Anglicanism, there are, there are three orders, and some like to say four because they include the laity in that. Um, but it's the, the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, are given, uh, conveyed. I love that word conveyed. Right? They're, they're, they're handed over um, for the office and work of the order being conferred. So this is actually one of the really interesting things about the ordination rites in the new, in the prayer book for 2019. In the... Uh, Keep checking my time. In the 1979 prayer book, which was the Episcopal, the Episcopal Church's prayer book, which we had used up till recently, uh, well, we'd never really used it here. Um, let me make sure I get this straight. Uh, the ordination rites were basically like laying on a hands, like make him a priest, make him a bishop, make him a deacon. Well, those aren't actually, that, that's not the wording of the ancient ordination rites. The wording of the ancient ordination rites, which subsists in the Anglican ordinal, is something like this. You're like, pour out the gift of your Holy Spirit for the office and ministry of a priest. Which, when I first read that, I was like, that's weird, that's not really an ordination. And then I started doing my study and I thought, oh no, this is good. Like, this is what it is. It's a setting apart by the Holy Spirit of the gifts for ministry, which are outpoured and conveyed. Um, so that's, that's what it is. Uh, and we really need to be to be clear about that because, um, well, let's just say it. Um, the gifts which enable priesthood, the gifts which enable a bishop to be a bishop, the gifts which enable a deacon to be a deacon are not the gifts that they have displayed up to that point. Does that make sense? Like, as important as that is, let's just say it, it's important, but it's not everything. Um, and one of the things that I've had to be reminded of regularly is that God gives great gifts in ordination. Um, so though I might doubt that someone has certain gifts that are necessary for ordination, what's the gift that's necessary for ordination? The gifts that are conveyed by the, the ordination itself. Um, and that's really important because, you know, I have to remember, I was ordained a deacon 16 years ago yesterday. And, um, no, Friday. And um, I have to remember that, uh, you know, the kind of deacon that I was at 25 years old is not the deacon that I am at 41. I've, I've, I think I've gotten better at certain things, and 
more able in certain regards, but I am still the deacon that I was at 25. Right? Um, and I have to remember that uh, because it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit that enable that work of ministry. And same way here, right? What what makes me able to celebrate the Eucharist? Not my charming personality, I'll put it that way, right? Um, which I'm not that charming, but uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that has to be remembered. Um, you know, well, let me just let me just be really honest with you right here. It is really easy to be disappointed in priests and isn't it? Like really easy. Like I was sick and you didn't come to see me in the hospital. Well, I didn't know. Like I'm not prescient. I don't know. Like who's in the hospital? You have to tell me. Um, things like that, you know. Or uh, you didn't remember my birthday. Or like uh, all those kinds of things. It can be way worse too, right? Be like. Father, I was very disappointed in you when you had like one too many beers at our pub night. Like, I'm sorry too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry I did. You know, um, but but listen, I'm I'm frail. I'm a Christian like you are. I'm saved by the same by the same things you are, and um, and you know the fact that you're scandalized by it. I I I repent of it, right? But but we need to have a lot of tolerance for this, right? Um, and the thing that, that my wife and I will often talk about is, you know, what kind of priest do I want at my bedside when I'm dying? But I'll just say, I want the priest who's been to hell and back. If I get to choose, which I won't. But I want the priest who's been to hell and back. I want the priest who's been, like, through a lot of pain, uh, you know, and, and the thing that, you know, I, I will turn to you if you're interested in this, read Graham Greene's Power and Glory because, because like, this, this guy's a mess. He's a mess. But you come to love him as Jesus loves him. And that's the key. That's the big key. That's the total key to the whole darn thing. Um, so hear that. You know, I will disappoint you all the time. I promise you. I promise you. If I've not disappointed you yet, get to know me. I'll disappoint you again. Uh, but that's the reality of it. And so will the other priests of Christ Church. Okay. Um, well, and also, you know, listen, I go through personal struggles just like you. I mean, I've got crap. I've got all kinds of it, right? Piled high in certain places, right? But listen, listen. That is not what ordination is. Not to say, oh, you're so perfect. No, not that at all. Okay. What are the three ordained ministries in the Anglican Church? The three orders are bishops, priests, and deacons, which we have received from Scripture and the historic church. Okay, this is to say that the three orders of ordained ministry are bishops, priests, and deacons. They are all contained in the New Testament. Um, there's a bit of confusion in the, Old in the New Testament because they seem to kind of be spoken of simultaneously. And yes, I will just say this, they're still spoken of simultaneously in certain senses. And I'll explain more what I mean by that. Um, but those are in Scripture. You'll see that uh, if, if you pick up, for instance, and it's surprising to some people, they'll, they'll read like the King James Bible, and they'll, they'll read the word bishop where they would have, in another translation, have read um, overseer. Okay. Well, that's because the word is episkopos, which becomes biskop, which becomes bishop, right? It's, there's a ling linguistic tradition behind all of this, actually. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll get into that as we go forward. But, but those are the three traditional words in the church. And it's unique, interesting, inter interestingly enough, as Anglicans. One of the things that Anglicanism preserves in the Reformation is the threefold order of ministry as does, in fact, the, the Lutheran Church of Sweden, of all things. <laughs> like, just really wild, right? 
But but the reason is that uh, Anglicanism uh, actually saw no reason to alter the threefold order of ministry and, just, and maintained it. Okay. Um, well, simultaneously saying that uh, that that uh, bishops are bishops, and there aren't just sort of like elite bishops. Um, in fact, our archbishops in the in the Anglican communion are uh, called primus inter pares, which means first among equals. Um, so they're not actually over any other bishop, but they're, they they share equal ministry. Okay. And they have dioceses too. That's another thing. That's fine. Yeah, they have dioceses. Okay. What is the work of bishops? Bishops represent and serve Christ and the Church as chief pastors, catechists, and missionaries in the tradition of the apostles. They are to confirm and ordain and guard the unity, the faith, unity, and discipline of the Church. Okay, we're running out of time, but I'm going to give you the give you the the, the highlights here. Um, the work of a bishop, uh, and the word bishop in in the Greek is episkopos. Um, which, if you've heard the word episcopal, that's where it comes from, uh, is episkopos in the Greek, and you can find that in places like you know, Titus 1 and uh, you know, 1 Timothy 3, places like that. Okay. Um, and it means, it means overseer. Um, it means they, they oversee the church. Uh, but they're also chief pastors, meaning there's no higher authority uh, for human beings to hold than, than, that, of, 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 than that of bishop um, in the church. They are also the chief catechists of the church, meaning that uh, that they are uh, responsible for the teaching um, as as first in teaching, and also as the chief missionaries of the church. So we don't often think of bishops as missionaries, but they are missionaries. Um, and in fact, uh, there have been wonderful throughout the centuries missionary bishops who've gone out, uh, you know, to to uh, to go into mission work as bishops. Um, in fact, uh, as you come in through the church. There's a there's a there's a little placard on there that, that has a prayer from uh, Frank Weston, who was the Bishop of Zanzibar, way on back. Um, listen, this guy was a hardcore missionary bishop. He used to take his rifle and shoot at slave traders from the cathedral tower. Serious businessman. Like he was he was like, I am the strong arm of the law here, and I'm going to take it seriously. <laughs> so, so anyway, missionary bishops. There's a long history of that. Um, and they're to follow all this in the tradition of the apostles. So uh, there's a sense in which bishops are to maintain the tradition of the apostles. Um, they are to confirm and ordain, so that's those two things that they do. Um, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church, that's really, really key. They guard all of those things, those three. Uh, and you should remember those when you think about a bishop. They guard the faith, right? So they're to drive away error, okay? Um, and, and drive off those who would upset the faith of the church. They're to keep the unity of the church, which means that uh, for those that would undermine the unity of the church, they're to uh, deal with that and deal with it swiftly. Um, and the discipline of the church. So uh, I am under the discipline of the bishop. Uh, the bishop could uh, has a bunch of options, <laughs> everything from a, a, a strongly worded email to a pastoral directive to a pastoral directive which I have to read to you all on a Sunday morning to banning me to defrocking me, to throwing me out on the street, okay? That can all happen. Right. So, so I want you to hear that. Um, for a lot of people coming from another church, they're like, well, what is to, be, what is to keep Christ's church from going off the rails doctrinally? Well, first is my, my humble commitment to all of you. The other is the bishop, right? Because if I went off the rails, dude, you, are at your, you can call the bishop, and the bishop will come down on me like fire from heaven, I guarantee you, um, and I will have uh, 
the, the hand of discipline uh, on me very quickly, um, should that be the case. Okay? So there you have it. Um, what is the work of priests? Serving Christ with their bishops, priests, or presbyters nurture God's people through the ministry of word and sacrament and pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Okay, so priests. Uh, this word comes from the Greek presbyteros, uh, which means elder or uh, some might say bearded one. Uh, I'm just glad I keep a little beard, you know, just to remind that. Uh, bearded one. Um, and, and presbyteros uh, means elder uh, in that sense. Uh, that word gets passed down through the centuries. Presbyteros to prester to prost to priest. Okay? Um, and in fact, that word uh, is really fraught with difficulty because the way that uh, the Old Testament is often in English translated the word uh, hieros in Greek or whatever it is in the, Old, in the Old Testament is priest and not elder. And there's a reason for that, uh, but but uh, but the, that's where the linguistic history gets rough, right? Because our word priest comes from presbyter, not from the word surrounding the, the Old Testament priesthood, which is where there's some confusion, but I would say there, there is also a definite succession in meaning as well. Um, what's the work? The work is to nurture God's people through the ministry of word and sacrament. I am a man of word and sacrament. Okay? It's very simple. Um, I can do very few things for you aside from preach to you and administer the sacraments to you. Um, there's a number of other things that I, that I do, but, but those are the primary ones. Okay. Uh, and pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name, which is done regularly. Right? So uh, absolution is a work of the priest. All right. What is the work of deacons? Serving Christ under their bishops, deacons care for those in need, assist in public worship, and instruct both young and old in the catechism, which is fantastic. Uh, the word diakonos in Greek means servant. Um, in fact, uh, the ministry of the church is often called in, in the New Testament. Uh, the the uh, diakonos, is that, that word is used uh, for the ministry of the church. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry, Right, which is actually equip the saints in the work of diakonos. Right? So is every Christ, does every Christian have a diaconal ministry? Yes, but these are set apart um, for that specific work. Um, they serve Christ in the church, both in the world and in the church. You'll note that in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, when the deacons are ordained, they are uh, they're Hellenistic Jews, which are set apart uh, to be uh, uh, those who, who serve the tables. Um, they're actually most, probably the clearest translation of that would be there's something like a server in a restaurant, actually. Uh, they serve the needs of the people. Uh, they make sure they get equal distributions. Um, also, there's been a tradition of deacons assisting in liturgy, and so uh, we, we will more than likely have a deacon here in the next few years. Um, and, and one of the things they do is they read the gospel. And it's to be reminded that the work of the gospel is the work of service. Um, and so that, that's another thing there. But diakonos this is the easiest word to explain. Becomes deacon down the road. So, all right, we will begin shortly.